So um, this morning, we're going to take a little bit of a detour. We've been in Ephesians for a while, and uh, we're going to resume that next week. But we're going to take a little bit of a uh, detour from that, and I want to just kind of focus our attention on an event that took place 505 years ago, uh, which served as a very critical moment in the history of our church. Sometimes we can um, let historical moments go by uh, unnoticed and um, really fail to appreciate the significance of, of those events. And it also causes us um, to, to fail to recognize God's uh, preservation of the church and, and of his word. Uh, and so this morning, uh, we're gonna take our, our time and take into consideration the fact that tomorrow uh, is Reformation Day, a, a moment in the history of our church where God uh, stepped in and really demonstrated his power uh, to, to preserve the truth of his word. The day was October 31st, uh, 1517. The almost 34-year-old Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther had been teaching and observing the ways of the Catholic Church. And the more he began to teach uh, the, the doctrine of the Catholic Church uh, and seek to align what was being taught with the scriptures, he became more and more aware of the fact that the traditions of the church uh, and the theology of the church were not aligning with the doctrine of the scripture, the teaching of the scriptures. And so Luther, with a heart and a desire to uh, be a communicator of truth, began to pen down um, certain things that he saw the church teaching that were inconsistent with the word of God. And he, became, he came up with what was 95 theses, 95 points of contention that he had against the Catholic church. And he proceeded to write them down and then nail them to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, to be completely honest, this was what well, seems like that would be a very antagonistic gesture. Uh, that was a very common practice of the day. That's the way in which the community would come and gather. Everybody would come to church on Sunday. And when there was a subject of conversation that needed to be communicated, they would usually nail it to the door. And so Luther, in his desire to um, let er put everybody on notice that there's some areas of theology that he had contention with in the Catholic Church. He nails these 95 theses onto the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther truly believed that, that much of what was being taught in the Catholic Church was being taught um, unbeknownst to the popes and the bishops in the hierarchy of, of, of Rome. Um, the, the Bible was not something was, that was so available. Um, training for the priests was not so uh, consistent. And so it started to, in the desire to really bring resources into the church, um, the teachings of the various priests were getting uh, very, very scattered and very, very inconsistent and, and very inconsistent with the word of God. And so it was Luther's belief that if the Pope only knew, 
If the leaders in Rome only knew what was being taught by the priests here in Germany and all throughout Europe, surely they would step in and seek to reform the church and bring back the truth of the gospel um, to uh, Luther, uh, to, to the people. Sadly, though, Luther came to realize that this false teaching that was being uh, perpetuated um, didn't just come from the local priests, but it did go all the way up to the top of the Catholic Church. Now, let me just say this this morning. My goal is not to bash Catholics. Uh, nothing ever effective happens by bashing people. I will bash theology, though, that is inconsistent with the Word of God. And so what we see in taking place in, uh, during the Protestant Reformation and even in the world today, we do see a theology that is perpetuated, that is endorsed, that is celebrated, that is inconsistent with the word of God. And it's that that I wanna kind of highlight this morning without um, drawing conclusions about the hearts of people in the Catholic faith. That's not my place to do that. It's not my place to judge the hearts of people who attend Catholic churches. That is not my desire. What I want to do, though, is highlight what took place 505 years ago that was very significant in highlighting how the, the Catholic church veered from biblical teaching and allowed tradition and and um, and really papal infallibility, which was the, 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 the teachings of the Pope to be the primary source of authority within the church. And so Luther, having written down these contentions with the Catholic church, he nails them to the church at Wittenberg, hoping that, that, that the, the, the church would reform um, and realizing that it wasn't going to do that. Let me give you a little back, a bit of background on Luther. Martin Luther was born in Germany in 1483, uh, seeing much of the, the futility that life um, and academia and philosophy had to offer. Uh, Luther was on a journey to discover God's plan and purpose, uh, not only for his life, but for life in itself. And so Luther was on a on a journey, it is at this time that he's, he, is, he is in school and he is getting very disillusioned with academia. He is getting very is, illu, disillusioned with many of the philosophers that they were required to study of the day, in the day. And, and so he is at this point and something very significant happens in the life of Martin Luther on July 2nd, 1505. He's returning back to school from being at home with his family. And on the way back to school, there is a thunderstorm and he is on horseback and a lightning bolt lands near him and throws him to the ground. Much like the, the, the conversion of the apostle Paul as he was heading to Damascus to persecute the church, here we have Martin Luther returning from home, heading back to college, disillusioned with the, with, with, with the philosophy and academia and all that he had seen. He is thrown to the ground. And it's interesting, his response was, Queen Anne or Saint Anne, save me. I will become a monk. It's all he knew. His only understanding of religion or connecting with God was the Catholic Church. And so his response to this lightning bolt sending him to the ground was, Saint Anne, save me, I will become a monk. 
Now, to the dismay of his father who wanted him to pursue law, Luther had an incredible mind and he was really the family hopeful who was gonna really kind of shine above everybody else. But to the dismay of his father, Hans, he leaves the law school that he was at and he enrolls in St. Augustine's monastery just two weeks after this lightning bolt experience. You see, Luther was driven by a sincere love for God, wanting to understand God's plan and purpose for his life and life in general. And so he had a sincere love for God, but Luther was also haunted by an awareness of his own sin. And recognizing that it was his sin that would separate him from God, he recognized that God was holy, that God was righteous. And he was aware that, that everything he produced in his own heart was, was, uh, was tainted by sin. And so Luther, as he kind of pursued this desire of being in the monastery and reading the scriptures and becoming aware of the law of God, he realized how horribly he measured up. He recognized how holy God is, how perfect God is, and how God's standard of righteousness was absolute perfection. And he recognized that there was no possible way in which he could ever attain that place of right standing before God. And it tormented him. In fact, he was asked one day, Martin Luther, do do you love God? I mean, this is one of his father confessors, one of the other priests, and asks this seminary student, Luther, do you love God? And Luther's response was this, love God? You ask me if I love God, sometimes I hate God. He was so aware of his inability to satisfy the justice of God that it created in him a a hatred even. The guilt and the shame that he bore from the awareness of his own sin would would torment him. Luther would spend hours in the confessional of those who, who, have, who have been in familiar, or familiar with the Catholic Church, the way that you would be forgiven of your sins, and you'd go to the priest and you'd confess your sins, and the priest would give you some, some prayers to do or say, and you would be absolved from your sin. And so Luther, this being his only understanding of finding righteousness with God, as he'd begin to search his own heart, he'd become very aware of the fact he had so much sin in his life, he'd spend hours, they said, in the confessional every single day to the point where they thought, what is the matter with this guy? Like how much, he's in a monastery. How much trouble can he really get in? And if you read some of Luther's writings, he would, he would say that there'd be times that he'd go into the monastery and he'd confess everything in and the priest would absolve him and he would walk away feeling free until just a moment later he'd remember something that he forgot to confess and all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the awareness of that sin would just take his peace right away. Sometimes I hate God, he said. You see, Luther, Luther sought right standing with God. I mean, that's what drove this young man. How, how do I, who am a sinner, find right standing 
with God. It ought to be the question of all of humanity. I mean, the reality of it is, if, if we live 70, 80, 90 years on this earth, that's a wonderful thing. But if we contrast a life on this earth with all of eternity, we better sh- be sure that we know where we're going to spend eternity. And so Luther was very, very consumed with the idea of, of wanting to be in right standing with God. In fact, it was the very thing that compelled him and compelled this movement. You see, the more that Luther studied the Bible, the more he became aware that, that righteousness was not achieved by the church. He came to realize that righteousness was not achieved by the, by, by the adherence of the sacraments. But the more he studied his Bible, he became to realize that righteousness was only achieved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. As Luther would begin to pour over the scriptures, he'd come across passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that anybody would boast. And he would look at that passage and hold that in contrast to what they had been taught about how to attain the righteousness of God, and it would, he couldn't reconcile the two. He'd come across Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, where it reads, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. No connection to the church, no need for a priest, no adherence to the sacraments, but through redemption, through his blood, we have received the forgiveness of our trespasses. He'd see in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, where it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and certainly every one of us can attest like he did as well, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul goes on to say, and are justified, how? By his grace. How come? As a gift By what means? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, not through the church, not through the Pope, not through the sacraments, whom God put forth as a propitiation by Christ's blood to be received, not from the church, but received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over our former sins. And so Luther would read these passages and, and, and try to hold this in contrast to what they had been teaching, and, and it was just irreconcilable. And then finally he writes about an event that just changed his life. One night as he was pouring through Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, this passage of Scripture hit him like another lightning bolt, if you will. Paul writes, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17 is where the lights went on for Luther. For in it, in what? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by by faith. And Luther said when he had read that passage of scripture, it was like the lights went on. He said it was as though I had been born again. The just 
shall live by faith. He said it was like the gates of heaven swung open and I walked in. The just shall live by faith, no longer by the adherence of a man or a system or an institution or the sacraments. The just, the right standing before God is attained by faith. The just shall live by faith. This became the battle cry of his teaching. That it was not upon the church that our faith is tied to, but the justifying work of Christ on the cross. The just shall live by faith. And the more Luther preached this, the freer people became as they experienced faith, true faith, in the work of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther's return to the biblical gospel of salvation by faith alone spread like wildfire all throughout Germany. It wasn't like this was a new theology that had just been created. No, there was, and God always had had people through the centuries who were held to the biblical gospel. But what ended up happening is the church began to be so influential in the community and the Bible became so unavailable to people that people had to depend upon the church and the teaching of the church to understand salvation. And as a result of that, they were in bondage to religion. They walked in shame and guilt. They were dependent upon the church to bestow upon them the grace that would lead to salvation only to discover through the pages of the revealed word of God that the just shall live by faith, by faith alone. And people were embracing this newfound freedom in Christ. This small group was beginning to multiply and quickly to the dismay of the church leadership, it became very noticeable. Much like when Jesus ministered amongst the Pharisees. And as Jesus would highlight truth, it would begin to cast a shadow on the teaching of the Pharisees and the people would shift their loyalty from the Pharisees to Jesus. And the Pharisees sought to silence the mouth of Jesus and his disciples. Well, that's exactly what has started happening as momentum was beginning to, 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 to go and, and this, this wildfire started to take place. The, the hierarchy of Rome sought to silence this movement. This return back to the biblical gospel from a, a works gospel was making a huge impact in the 1500s as people began to protest against the teachings of Rome. Those who protested against the theology of Rome became known as Protestants or Protestants. That's where we get the term Protestant from. It's a protest against the, the teaching of Rome. And so what started as a, a sincere desire to reform the Catholic Church by Martin Luther, to inform them of, of what the error was so that the Pope might bring them back to truth ended up becoming what we know as the Protestant Reformation that took place 505 years ago today. A Reformation back 
to biblical Christianity. And so if you're here today and you hold to the biblical teaching of, of salvation by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are what would we consider Protestant because you are in protest to a, the adherence and the holding to a system for your salvation. Now, underneath the umbrella of Protestant, there are many denominations that exist. There's evangelical and there, there's Baptist and Pentecostal and Presbyterian. Underneath the umbrella of Protestant, there's a lot of mainstream churches, but the reality of it is what they all share in common is an awareness, an awareness and a teaching that salvation, justification before God is only achieved by the work of Christ on the cross. This Protestant message of grace went viral as people began leaving the Catholic Church and obviously began to catch the attention of the people of Rome. As this movement began to increase, so did the desire to silence this, this former monk. And so finally he is called upon to stand before the council, to stand before the bishops, to stand before the archbishops, to stand before the, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. They are woven all throughout the civil authorities and governments of the day. Here is this young Martin Luther who is called upon to stand before them and give an answer for this rebellion that's taking place in their minds. This heresy that he is promoting in their minds, that is causing such a stir within the Catholic Church. Here's a scene from that time. It's April 16th, 1521. It's about three years from that moment when Luther nailed those 95 theses on the door. He's about 38 years old. And he enters into the German town of Worms. Doesn't that sound like a place you'd want to be? Let's go to vacation in Worms, right? He is in the German town of Worms, and he is scheduled to come and stand before the Emperor Charles. He is to give an account for this chaos that he has created. He has been coined as a wild boar in the vineyards of God's garden. The purpose of the meeting was to address his views concerning the Pope, concerning papal infallibility. What is that? Papal infallibility is the idea that the church, that the, the Pope can say no wrong. Anything that the Pope deems to be true, regardless of what the scripture says, his authority is always without error and always to be adhered to. And then obviously he is to address his writings and his teaching on justification by faith alone. It was this theme, faith alone, that became the, the central issue of debate because it, it stood in such stark contrast to the teaching of Rome. Luther had mit, written many books about this rediscovered biblical truth in his own eyes. He would eventually become the center of this controversy faith alone. The essence of this controversy really had to do with the truth and the essence of what is the gospel? How does man and woman come into right standing with God? The consequences of this is extremely important. Our understanding of this is extremely important. 
The scene on that day in Worms was dramatic. I mean, his life was in the balance. They had the power and the authority to execute him on grounds of heresy. The only thing that got Luther to the table was a promise of safe passage to and from. And so he comes and he stands before the religious hierarchy of the day. On the one side was Emperor Charles. He is the heir of a long line of Roman Catholic sovereigns. Alongside the emperor were the leading civil and ecclesiastical leaders of the day. And it was before this powerful, intimidating, pompous group of religious leaders that this young 38-year-old theologian was to stand before and give an account for his writings, for his teachings, for this rebellion that was taking place as a result. Luther was examined by Archbishop Eck of Trier. Before Luther was placed a pile of books, these were books that Luther had written. And the question that he was asked, Luther, are these your books? To which he responded that they were. Bishop, Bishop Eck asked the obvious question about these books. Martin Luther, will you recant from what you have written? Will you change your mind? Will you take back what you have taught in these books? Imagine the pressure on that young man. You see, we, we, we look at this through the luxury of hindsight and, and in the safety of our own you know, worlds, but the reality of it is he is standing alone against the church as he knew it. They have the power, they have the influence, they have the look, they have the history, and here is young Martin Luther, 38 years old, who's needing to give a response to this pompous group that stands before him. Will you recant of your writings? He understood the significance of answering that question wrong and what the result would likely be for him. Surprisingly, and history tells us almost sheepishly, Luther, aware of the consequences of his answer, asked his accusers, can I have 24 hours to think about it? Because even then, he just wanted to make sure he was gonna die for the right reasons. What is defined by Luther as a night of torment and sleeplessness. I mean, could you imagine trying to catch a wink that night? Wrestling over in your mind over and over again, making sure that what you've written is consistent. Did I understand it correctly? God, are you putting me in this place to stand against the hierarchies of this day? I'm feeling very alone. And if you read some of the stories of, of Martin Luther and his writings about that moment and, and, and that, that night, that dark night of the soul, 
where he was tormented and fearful and aware of what the consequences of his actions would likely bring. I mean, he thought to himself, who am I to question the leadership of God's church? Because that's all they knew. The next day, as you can imagine, everyone, everyone gathered together for Luther's reply. Word was out. The atmosphere was electric. Luther's writings had stirred up the German people and they were discovering this newfound freedom, this new liberty that comes from an embracing of the true gospel. I mean, they were ready to, to revolt in order to support Luther. And the religious community was aware of it. It was because of this brewing dissension that the civil and the ecclesiastical leaders of the day knew they needed to constrain and muzzle Martin Luther. And so the next day has come and they, are, they have gathered together and he stands before Archbishop Eck and the question is repeated, Martin Luther, do you recant of your writings? And Luther tried to explain how he had come to his positions. He appealed to them to try and understand the application of God's word. He said, if I, if I recant of all of my writings, then I'll be recanting of things that we all agree with. There's other areas that we don't agree with that if we would only allow the scriptures to, to speak into these things, he was hoping that there was something in them that would be willing to appeal to the scriptures. How does one reply with a simple yes or no answer, I will or I will not recant? After a while, the now frustrated Bishop Eck interjected, I ask you, Martin, Answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors in which they contain? Will you recant? Luther's response is, is legendary. I quote him. Luther standing before his accusers, the religious leaders, says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, for it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. Luther said, I am, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is held captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. God, help me. Amen. These words chiseled in time became the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. 
unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture. My conscience is held captive by no other authority but in the Word of God. It was this commitment to being convinced by Scripture and being held captive to the Word of God that he began to translate the Bible into the German language. What happened after that moment is as, as, as Luther leaves this trial, he is whisked away, he is kidnapped by his peers. History tells us that Luther actually was aware that that was going to happen, and he is whisked away into a free and peaceful and safe location where he's hidden for a few years, and he begins to translate the Bible into the German language because he no longer wanted these, the people who he loved to have to depend upon anybody else to interpret the scriptures. He wanted them to be able to interpret them themselves. And it was from the studying of the word of God, it was from the the reading and application of God's word that the five solas of the Protestant Reformation are introduced. Now, this might be a term that many of you are not familiar with. Uh, However, these these are the foundational principles that the Protestant Reformation gave birth to. They greatly impacted modern Christianity and our understanding of the proper place of of Scripture and faith and grace and God and Christ. And they are still embraced by Protestants today. Let me just be really clear. This is not, these were not new doctrines. This was not new teachings that were introduced 500 years ago, but is the recovery of the truth as revealed in the word of God that got lost in the midst of tradition and, 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 and religiosity and, and ignorance to what the word of God truly says. They became known as the five solas. Sola is a Latin word meaning alone. And each of the five solas have a a Latin word that's connected to it. And we're going to briefly take a look at it. I look forward to, in the weeks ahead, I'm looking forward to uh, taking uh, Wednesday nights and going through each of the five solars in in the midweek study so we can really build upon it. But for today, let me just kind of scratch the surface a little bit of what these five solas are that kind of came out of the Protestant Reformation. The first one was this, sola scriptura. All Latin words, sola scriptura. It means scripture alone. I mean, the problem, was, the problem that he was up against was people that embraced tradition, they, placed, they embraced religiosity, and the cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone. It, maintain, it maintains that the Bible is the highest source of authority in the Christian's life for faith and practice. All that we believe about God, all that we believe about the world, all that we believe about ourselves and others is to be informed by God's word and God's word alone. Sola Scriptura. It is sufficient, it is effective, and it speaks to all people at all times in all locations. It is absolute truth. Sola Scriptura. Paul, in writing to Timothy, says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Sola scriptura, scripture alone 
That's why I always appeal to you and say, make sure you know the word of God for yourself. The second solo that came out of the Reformation was sola fide, faith alone. Sola fide affirms that that right standing before God is only made possible through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross as the only grounds for our salvation, the only grounds for our justification. Faith alone, not works, not institutions, not not people, not anything, but faith in Christ and his work on the cross as our only means for salvation. Romans chapter four and verse five says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Righteousness is, 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 is embraced and celebrated apart from our works because of his work on the cross. It is the only grounds for justification. Sola fide, faith in Christ alone. Thirdly, the third sola is sola gratia, or grace alone. This means that sinners are saved solely on the unearned gift of God. That's what grace means. Unmerited favor. Unearned gift from God, lest anyone should boast. Grace is different than faith in that it follows faith, in that as we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone, we become recipients of the grace of God. It is upon putting faith in Christ that we receive the grace that we receive to be saved, which is, is in complete contrast to Roman Catholic teaching. Roman Catholic teaching says the grace that you need comes from the priest. As you adhere to the sacraments, they'll give you the grace that you need as you put faith in the sacraments to receive salvation. And that's not what the scripture teaches. Our faith is achieved and arrived by putting faith in what Christ has done for us. And as we do that, we receive the grace that we need to receive justification before God. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. The fourth sola is sola Christus, Christ alone. This emphasizes the exclusivity of Jesus' role in salvation. Everything we look to, it is all a dependent and, on, and rests on him. It is Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, right? There is one mediator between God and man, Hebrew says, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. It is not a system, it is not works, it is not a church, it is not even the adherence to what you think the do's and don'ts are. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, sola Christus. He is the chief cornerstone. And Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven by which man might be saved in the name Christ Jesus. Solas, sola Christus. And then lastly, soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone 
be the glory, or to the glory of God alone. This points us to the, 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 the purpose of creation, the purpose of salvation, the purpose of everything, including our own personal goals as Christians, is the glory of God. We exist for the glory of God. We exist for his pleasure. Everything we do, our very existence, is for the glory of God. That God may be all in all. Philippians chapter two and verse nine says, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. We are recipients of that. We are beneficiaries of that. But why have I been saved? Why have I been justified? It is to the glory of God the Father. My own justification doesn't revolve around me. It revolves around him, sola Christus. Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, will say to them, listen, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. That is our call. Work to the glory of God. Have fun to the glory of God. Live your life to the glory of God. It's the battle cry of the Reformation, sola Christus. Sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christa, sola, sola Deo gloria. These are the five convictions that flowed out of the Protestant Reformation. As I said before, these were not new truths, but they were rediscovered truths that got lost in the midst of tradition that got lost in the midst of religion and got lost because people did not know the word of God and they were recovered 505 years ago tomorrow. As Luther started the Reformation by nailing his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg. This is extremely significant for us today. Solomon will tell us that there's nothing new under the sun. And you see, the reality is people were led astray for many, many years because they didn't know the word of God and they needed to depend upon a religious system to explain to them how they can be in right standing with God. And you know, nothing is new under the sun. The reality is if, if we don't learn from history, we are due and destined to repeat it. And you see, the only difference between them and us is, you see, they didn't have the Bible at that time. But in the goodness and the sovereignty and the, and, and, and the providence of God, while all that was going on, what's introduced is what? The printing press. Gutenberg's printing press. Do you know that Martin Luther became the first, um, uh, the first um, number one author of Gutenberg's printing press? It was Martin Luther, right? And as the word of God is being, is being uh, produced for, for in, in the language of the people, in the, in the common language of the people, the, print, the printing press is making this available to everybody. So the difference between us and them before that, though, was they didn't have word, the, the word of God. The difference 
between them and us is today we do have the word of God. But sadly in our culture, one thing that we share the same is they were ignorant to the word of God. And we live in a culture today also that is ignorant to the word of God. Depending on churches, depending on priests, depending on pastors, depending on blogs, depending on narratives of the day, people have allowed their theology, they allowed their, their understanding on being right with God to be something that was regurgitated from somebody else. Instead of allowing the word of God to bring truth to their own hearts by, Holy, by the Holy Spirit. May we never repeat May we learn from the past so we don't repeat it. I cannot, I will not recant anything. We are in a day where much of what the word of God goes against the flow of the world around us. We better know God's word for ourselves. May we have the heart of a young Martin Luther, as imperfect as he was. And let me tell you, he was imperfect on so many levels. <laughs> but God used an imperfect person to preserve the church, to bring truth back. It just screams of the, the preservation of the bride of Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And just as it seemed like the gates of hell were pounding on the door of the church, God raised up a people who held tightly to the word of God. May that be our reality as well. May the heart cry of the Reformation be the battle cry of our day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the way you have preserved your church over the centuries. We thank you for how you have preserved the word of God and made it so available to each and every one of us. Lord, may we never settle for somebody else's communication of the word, settle for anybody else's just teaching of the word. May we be students of the word ourselves knowing that the same Holy Spirit is within each and every one of us and allow us to learn everything we need to know about you, about ourselves, about the world around us. May we not be lazy, but may we be students of the word. Thank you for what you've done. We celebrate the Reformation. We celebrate sola scriptura. We celebrate sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus. And we do it solely Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. Amen.